0: Well, good morning, Church. It is great to be back with you today i 've been gone a little bit this summer, a little bit of vacation. I was on a mission trip, taking some time to see family. But I have been here off and on as well, kind of incognito, even if not on the platform and uh, you know I just got to tell you, I have loved hearing from some of our other staff guys during this series. We are fortunate as a church to have so many guys who can bring us the Word of God, help us understand it, and help us apply it. Right, church? Man, it's good to be on this team. And it's good to be back with you. Uh, if I squirm a little bit, it's because I got sunburned the other day, and parts that I haven't seen sun in a while. So, yeah, hopefully I'm not too squirming. But let's take a moment to pray, and then we're going to get right into God's Word. God, you are holy, and you are good, and you are just... And we're not. And so God, for all the reasons that people would be here in this place today, would be joining us online today, God, I pray that we would all be here ready to encounter you. So give us us eyes to see you. Give us ears to hear your word and your truth. Give us hearts to receive what you would have for us. Transform us, God. And give us hands to apply your truth in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the command seems simple enough. On the outset, it seems like it's a command that none of us are probably going to worry much about breaking. It's one of those commands that, oh, we got that down, at least as it's commonly understood. But this command of God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment you must not murder. In the Hebrew, the original language, it's really only two words, no murder. God just says it pretty matter-of-factly, no murder. And so this command is actually as timely for us today as it has ever been in any time of history. Every nation, every culture forbids murder. Yet, around the world, we see murder Even on the rise. Our own city last year here in Louisville in 2020. We set a record for the most homicides. The most murders in any single year in our city's history. And we're on track this year to break it. That's not a record we want to be chasing. Like murder is all around us. It is just everywhere around us. It's in our movies, it's in the news, it's in our books, it's even in our podcasts. The media and entertainment industry, the news industry knows that murder stories are the key to achieving killer ratings. In fact, some estimates say that by the time our kids turn 18, that they will have witnessed over 80,000 murders through various media sources. And most of them portrayed in realistic ways. Now, unless we think that that's just this new generation and there's a time that's turned in our culture. Listen, it's not new. I grew up with parents. Like, I'm in my mid-40s now, so I grew up watching the old shows with my parents. Matlock. Columbo, watching Jessica Fletcher solve a different murder mystery every week. Some of you were there with me as kids. Some of you were there as the parents watching those. But long before it was in our TV shows and in our movies, it was in our books. And long before it was in our contemporary books, it was in the books of old. Shakespeare and Sophocles, before they were penning their tragedies, murder had made its way even into our sacred scriptures. We, we only have to go four chapters into the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, before we witness Cain kill, murder his brother Abel. Out of anger, out of jealousy, out of hatred, he, he murders his brother. And what's shocking is that this is only one generation into the human story. These are the children, the sons of Adam and Eve, the first people created by God. And we are told in Genesis 1, that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created all of us in his image. And so when God created us, he, he made us different than every other created thing. God created all of it, but with humans, he elevated us to a different level. And so being made in his image, different than any other created thing, we are the only ones made in his image. And by doing that, God places this sacredness on human life. That we as people have this sacredness to our lives. By the time we enter into this story of God creating us, we realize that, that there's something special about us something different about us so so we are to value one another we're to uphold life with one another that's really when we get to the sixth commandment that we find there you must not murder that, that god is just reiterating the sacredness the value he has placed on us and because he has made us sacred we are to assign dignity to one another we're to respect one another we're to defend one another to protect one another's lives But it's not just what we are to do for them. It's knowing that all of those people, everyone else, should also be doing that for us. This is God's protection for every one of us. That we are in a community to respect and show dignity and protect one another. Now, before we move on with this, we we need to understand that there's a difference between murder and simply killing. Some of your translations, if you read your Bible, might say you should not Kill, But that's not really the most accurate. Murder is the best translation for the word from the Hebrew into the English language. Because there's a difference between murder and killing. And and throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we see God, through various places, distinguish this. He shows us a difference between murder and killing. That murder is never okay. Murder is the vengeful, hateful, evil act of stealing another person's life. But, but killing can look different. I mean, th- think of the context of a, a soldier at war or self-defense or capital punishment or even an accident. You know, may- maybe something happens when you're, you're rock climbing and, and you're supposed to belay somebody and it, it goes wrong or you're in the car and something happens to your car and something goes wrong and somebody dies as an accident and you're, it's kind of at fault, but not really. It's God. Sets that aside, and there are laws in the Old Testament that say, "No, you, you deal with that differently than you do with a hateful murderer." So it gets really messy. I mean, th- this whole concept becomes messy that there's this difference between murder and killing. If if we just take that example of a soldier at war, the, the, the sixth command, "Do not murder," th- does not forbid a soldier to be at war. If, if you think about a soldier going to war who is defending people, who's liberating people who've been oppressed, who's advancing freedom for people. That is okay. And, and Scripture tells us that that's okay. But even though Scripture doesn't forbid it, it doesn't mean that there's just a blind thing like, oh yeah, we should just go ahead and do it. Like, We've we got to be careful here. We've we got to wrestle with these complicated ethical situations that, just simply because Scripture does not forbid something, does not give us permission to always go do that thing. Like war should not be our first response. There are times that because we live in such a sin-soaked world where evil is so present, there are times when war is a sad necessity to thwart evil. But as a people of God, we should not just blindly coalesce to the political agenda of our elected officials. I mean, sometimes we enter into war and we would like to think it's a just cause, it's righteous, but sometimes it's, really messy. It's really complicated. Sometimes the reason for the war might not just be to free people. And so that gets really complicated. And we should never enter into, I mean, war is a serious issue that sometimes is not dealt with seriously enough by our elected officials. Very easy for those who sit in suits in Washington to, to say we should advance war, very different for those who wear the uniform and go. Too many of our troops come home, our young men and women come back from war with physical, emotional, relational scars and wounds. Too many of them don't come back at all. And because of that, we should be slow to engage in war. Not, Not that it should never happen, but we need to be really careful of that. And it's the people of God, none of us should be the war mongers advocating as a first response that that is a solution to the problems in our world. I think of the complication of, of self-defense as well. I mean, Scripture does not forbid it. In fact, this 6th commandment does not forbid self-defense. There are other passages that say that if someone kills somebody in defending themselves, they are not to be held as a murderer. That it's actually okay that they're off the hook for that. But again... We should never just trounce over this like it's a light issue. I mean, if we're talking about taking one person's life to preserve another, that should cause us to wrestle a little bit. Some of you are going to want, as we dig into these tough topics today, you're going to want the preacher to tell you what to believe or what to think, and and you're going to hope that it aligns with what you already think. I mean, that's how we are as people. I'm going to tell you on some of these, I don't know. It's just complicated. There's, there's an ethical side to this that's messy. I mean, if it comes to self-defense and, and, and there was somebody coming at me, I, I don't know what I would do. I, I think I know what I would do, but, but I've never had to be in that situation. And, and, and it looks really weird for me. Like, should I take somebody else's life in the preservation of my own? But, but I know where I'm going if I die. I know what awaits me. I, I know that I have heaven ahead of me. And that's not an arrogant statement. And in fact, it's anything but that. Because heaven is not something that I deserve because of anything I've done. It's just the opposite. Heaven awaits anyone who knows that there's nothing they can do to get to heaven except trust in Jesus and everything he has already done. It's only because of Jesus, because faith in him, because he is Savior, because he is Lord, not because of me. And and, and listen, that that same Confidence is available to you If you put your hope in Jesus But knowing that I had that confidence And the uncertainty about The one who would attack Should I choose my life over his or hers I, I can't help but think Of the countless missionaries Who have willingly Accepted persecution Even persecution to the point of death Hoping that their sacrifice might in some way influence those who are persecuting them, might influence those who are murdering them, that the murderers, the persecutors, might turn towards Jesus because of the willing sacrifice of the persecuted. And we've seen that that's happened. I can tell many stories where missionaries who've laid down their lives actually led to people coming to know Christ. Now, the situation gets really Twisted, it's it's a whole different scenario if if other people are involved. Like if it's not just self defense, but like my family's involved or there's somebody else there who seems to be innocent. It, It seems as though I should protect them, I should defend them. But the ethics of all these things, it just gets complicated. Scripture does not forbid the death penalty. It, it does not forbid capital punishment. But but capital punishment is, is, again, one of those complicated ethical things. Because the situation for us is different than it was back then when this command and the other commands were written in the time of, of the Old Testament. Like when, when God says, in fact, there are scriptures that say if somebody is to take somebody else's life, then the only real consequence, the, the only effective means of justice is that they have then forfeited their own life as well. And in saying that, God is saying that human life is so sacred, it's so valuable, that the only way to have justice when somebody steals the sacred life of another is that then they would forfeit their own. But that context looks different for Israel than it does for us as Americans today. Israel was a nation, but it was a theocratic nation. A nation where God sat at the helm. That they got their rules, their laws from God. They were a nation that was to be an example to all other nations of what what it is to look like as the people of God, to be surrendered to him and let him lead you. The United States, it's not us. We are a democratic representative republic where we vote on things. We have elected officials and we are a melting pot and we have you know freedom of religions so we have all kinds of religions represented amongst our nation and 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 that just is a little bit different so we have judges and elected officials and all these different people who might not look to god and so as they're making decisions on this it's a different context than it was in Israel and it's different too for the church like the the nation of Israel was a nation but the church today the people of god now we're not a nation we are a community of people we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom but but we have our place in several different nations. So many different places. So many different nations. And all those nations with varying laws and rules. And, and so it looks different for us now. So while capital punishment might not be forbidden by scripture. Is it the best policy? I don't know. And I don't know that we could say yes or no for every situation the, the same. I, I, th- I think that some are different than others. I mean, but I will tell you this. That it forces me to wrestle. And I hope it forces you to wrestle as well. That that the way we arrive at our conclusion should be based not on what we want it to be. And certainly not on our emotion or on our limited human intellect. But it should be based on scripture. But not just the scripture that agrees with what we've already concluded. That's called proof texting. And we need not have a proof texting kind of Christianity that searches the Bible for passages or phrases that agree with the way we'd like it to be or agree with the things we already think, that agree with the way we were brought up or agree with our politics or agree with our gut feeling. Because we go to any issue, and we go to any place in Scripture, we start picking Scripture out of context. We may say whatever we want. But when we do that, we bypass the work that God wants to do in us. This work of spiritual formation, of forming Christ in us, of transforming us to look more and more and more like Jesus. The work that God wants to do to lead us from sinfulness to holiness. And so we must engage in this thing of looking at the whole counsel of Scripture and seeing what all of Scripture says and and putting it together and, and arriving at a conclusion based on God's Word and allowing ourselves to wrestle with the issue and to wrestle with Scripture and to wrestle with God and to wrestle with ourselves and in that to allow God to do His work to transform us. So while the Scripture might not forbid the death penalty, I don't know that we should always be so quick to agree with it i'm reminded of the scripture we looked at just a moment ago that that all of us are made in the image of god every single one of us that includes you made in the image of god and so that means you matter to god but it's also true that every single one of us bar none have distorted god's image in our lives with our own sin that we have done things we have chosen things that distort god's image but even still god says we matter to him even the one who inflicts great pain and harm on others still matters to God. Listen, I'm a dad. I got three kids. They're all teenagers now. This just happened. Just a week ago, my son turned 13. I now have three teens. You can pray for me. All right? And as sometimes happens in the Fitzhome, the kids don't get along. And everyone wants to snap all the time. But every once in a while, when they're not getting along, eventually gets to the point where, boom, one of them pops the other one. doesn't happen often, but when it does... Do I love the one who got popped more than the one who did the popping? No. Do I treat them differently? Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Treat them way differently in that situation. Unless the one who got popped is the one who was doing all the antagonizing. Sometimes you get what you deserve. But I'm just saying. Fitzhouse rules. So do I love them differently? No. Do do they matter to me? Yeah, they're my kids. The popped and the popper. They're, They're still my child. I love them the same They matter to me I might, I might have to interact with them I might have to dole out punishment and consequence differently I might have to discipline differently But they still matter And so do we No matter what we've done We still matter to God But that means so do they Whoever they is That means that even the murderer Matters To God Does that upset you? Does that make you squirm a little bit? Make you uneasy? Does that make you angry? It does me. I'll just be totally honest. Man. I just keep pulling back the, the curtain today. I don't like this. That doesn't sound like justice to me. That the murderer matters to God. No, 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 no. The one whose life was taken matters to God. The murderer, oh, somehow they forfeit. I mean, I, I, I don't like that. That doesn't sit easy with me. But... But I have to wrestle that maybe, just maybe, God sees things differently than I do. That maybe, maybe God's up to something. Like like the what if has to come into play. What if God is up to something in even the murderer's life? That what if God wants to do something in that person's life to write a next chapter in their life that's far better than what you and I could even imagine? Like I think of my buddy Stan. Stan was a dude who at a young age, very angry guy mean guy, and he stabbed a dude to death with really no particular reason. Stabbed a guy to death. Could have faced the death penalty, instead got a whole lot of years in prison. Stan goes to prison. He's angry. He's mean. He's bitter. He hates life. He hates everybody else. He's the troublemaker. He's the one who starts causing riots. He's the one who gets in with the gangs. He is the one who disrupts things and makes trouble, makes trouble for the warden and the inmates and other prisoners. So they move him from one prison to the next, to the next, to the next, because eventually they can't handle this trouble anymore. So they just keep bouncing him around and moving the troublemaker until eventually Stan meets this group of guys who don't take to him, don't buy into his troublemaking. And these guys introduce Stan to Jesus. And Stan begins following Jesus. Stan surrenders, says, I need a Savior, and it's not me, and it's Jesus. And I need someone to lead my life way better, and I'm leading it. Jesus is the only one that's gonna lead me well. And so he begins going to Bible study, and eventually he starts leading Bible studies. And eventually, Stan becomes the person of peace in the prison, where Stan is the one who, when trouble starts to erupt, they put him in there, because he understands the games, and he understands the troublemakers, and he understands the guys who've knifed other people, and he understands all the problems, because he used to be that guy. And he starts speaking into it, and God starts doing this redemptive thing for him. And they begin moving Stan from prison to prison to prison to prison to be the guy to bring the peace of God to a prison to calm things down. And then eventually Stan's released from prison. And Stan has given decades of his life to living in the halfway house and working with jail ministry and prison ministry to help guys who were formerly incarcerated who have found Christ to become contributing citizens again instead of just consumers, instead of just convicts. They're redeemed in their change. God has done a miraculous work in Stan's life. And that's to be celebrated. And I'll be honest, if I'm the family member of the guy who got stabbed several decades ago, it'd be a weird kind of celebration. I think of Moses, the murderer. Moses, what must it have been like? Moses is the one delivering these commands to God's people. Moses is the one to say, and number six, don't murder, knowing that he himself had murdered an Egyptian slave master decades ago. And that some of those watching him, listening to him, saw him do it. Moses the murderer. And God did a few pretty cool things through Moses. Like he did something significant in his life. And so here's Moses. Like before Moses ran off from Egypt, before he was there at the burning bush, before God sent him back to lead everyone on the exodus. Moses the murderer. Delivering this commandment. What must that have been like? Where I think of, of Saul, the Pharisee, who, who was leading the charge against the early church, persecuting them, having them thrown in prison, having some of them murdered and killed for their faith. And then on a dirty, dusky road to Damascus, Saul encounters Jesus. And he flips the script. And instead of being against the church, Paul surrenders and becomes part of the church. And then Paul begins leading the church. And Paul becomes the primary missionary in the first century. And God uses him in a way we know him better as Paul the apostle. Church planner. Missionary. Apostle. One who penned much of the New Testament. Maybe God has more to do in the life of the murderer than what you and I could imagine. I don't know. But that should cause us pause. That should cause us to wrestle. It should slow us down. Now I think of, of other tough topics. I, I know some of you are, are wrestling with this concept of, well, what about the person who murders themselves? What about suicide? I just want to speak some truth into this. Man, there's a lot of lies that have gotten tossed out. Listen, if you have known someone who put their hope in Jesus, trusted him as Savior, they followed him as the leader in their life, but then they hit a dark day or a dark season and they ended up taking their own life. Listen, their suicide did not change their eternal destination. Their suicide did not change their salvation. They just didn't have the power to do that. Uh, Some of you, you've been falsely taught. And, And it's true that God doesn't want any of us to take our own life. Of course not. But for that person who did, if their hope was in Jesus, listen, that they did not forfeit their salvation any more than if they had been driving down the road and sinfully speeding, got in a car accident and died. Or if they had been angrily, sinfully yelling at somebody, had a heart attack and died. It just... The trust was in what Jesus did, not in what they did. It, it was just a simple moment of a lapse into sin. Terrible consequence. But if they trusted Jesus, their salvation is secure. Man, today, this, this concept of don't murder just brings so many different complicated issues. I'd be remiss if we didn't address abortion. And, and there's. There's not enough time for us to adequately address this issue. I mean, and there's so much that goes to abortion. And, and this, is, this is tough because I'm gonna be really sensitive because I know that some of you listening today here or online have dealt with this firsthand yourself or someone you love. And some of you are wrestling and you're, you're wrestling with regret and pain. And, and we live in a time when when abortion has become this This big business, like multi-million dollar business. And and there are those who are making the money off the business of abortion, convincing young women to make a decision they're going to regret the rest of their life. And they just abandon them after that. They're trying to flip the script that the the child is not a child, that it's simply a fetus. And so I just want to address that concept real briefly. What is inside the woman? Is, is not a baby. There's so many scriptures that speak to how God created us in the womb and God formed us and from that moment of conception. I think one of the most convincing arguments for me is when the angel visits Joseph, he tells Joseph what is conceived in Mary, what is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus leaves heaven and he comes to earth, he doesn't just pop onto the scene in the manger. He's in her womb. The baby is there before him. When Mary visits Elizabeth, and then the babies leap in the womb. There's, there's life in the womb. I, I, I can think of nothing more cruel or insensitive than, than telling somebody who's experienced a miscarriage. It's just fetus. Not really a child. Shouldn't worry about it. Not a big deal. And every time my wife and I got pregnant, we celebrated the baby in Jen's belly. And then as we had kids and those kids were getting older then they would celebrate too like here's a baby in mommy's belly. And then we experienced a miscarriage with one of them. We didn't just slough it off like oh just a fetus not a big deal. We grieved. We wept. We mourned the loss of our child. We mourned the loss my children's sibling. We had a funeral. We had a name. We had a baby. How cruel to try and change that language to say, no, 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 that's not a life. Don't buy that. Don't buy that lie of hell. But now listen. It, And if you've had an abortion, I want you to listen in real closely. Some of you are wrestling with this. You've never told anyone your secret. And you've wrestled with regret and with shame and with pain and with hurt. And maybe you've tried to overcome that by just justifying it and trying to figure it out. Listen. God's grace is sufficient for you. The blood of Jesus covers your sin. You matter to God. God. And there is forgiveness for you if you'll take it. This issue is so complicated. It's so complex. There's so much that goes into it. As a church, we need to be people who actually deal with this thing the right way. Instead of just being people who are angry and hateful towards what's happening in our world. And it's okay to be angry at the situation. But when we actually talk to people who are wrestling. When we interact with a young woman who's wrestling with an unwanted pregnancy. Let's be really careful to amp up our compassion and to slow down our anger and our hatred. Let's walk beside her because that's actually what she needs. And let's be people who come beside her to be people who are actually going to be there after the child is born. People who provide counsel, even if a woman goes through it. People who are there to love and provide compassion and counsel. That's what I love about the ministry we partner with, Beside You for Life. They do such an amazing job with this. See, for us to be pro-life is for us to be more than just against abortion and against murder. It's to be pro-life. The entirety of life. So for us, we need to do more than just cast a vote on a certain side of the issue and say, well, that settles it. We, we need to be people who are willing to enter in and provide life. Jesus says, He came that we would have life to its fullest, life overflowing. So that means, church, we got to be people who enter in and help provide that overflowing life for people. That we are there to help provide education and provide health care and provide a good life. And if the guy's a bell, then we need to deal with that. And we need to deal with the issues that lead up to abortion. And we need to deal with the guy's part of the problem. And we need to deal with all the complexities that go with it and we need to provide that's why you know we should be people who support fostering and adoption and a holistic approach to life that we make sure they have good education and that they're given a shot at life not just a shot at birth but a shot at life and that's why we're doing this build a bed thing, because there's too many kids in our own community who don't even have a bed to sleep on what I got extra beds in my house when guests come over. And there are kids that don't have a bed to sleep on. So I hope you join us this coming Saturday when we build those beds for the kids who need them. And and this issue is so much bigger than just the unborn. If we're going to say we're against murder and we're for life, then we got to be people who actually embody what what God is talking about in this. That we are people who are for all of human life. That that means we are pro-life. We are pro every human life. So that means we are people who take a position of compassion. As we deal with the sick, and we deal with the homeless, and we deal with the addict, and we deal with the mentally ill, and the physically disabled, and the elderly, and the refugee, and we deal with all those people out there, that we take a position of compassion to help introduce them to the life in Christ, that that's what pro-life is actually about. Now, Jesus actually has something to say on this whole subject as well. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, says, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. And there he's quoting the sixth commandment. But then he goes on and says, But I say to you, even if you are angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. He puts anger on the same level as murder. What? Crazy. And then he goes on. says, If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, this cursing means if you... Basically, excommunicate someone from the community of God with your words. If you say, you don't belong with us. Our language that we would use for that today would be damning someone. You get where that's going. If you're damning someone with your language, you, not they, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus puts anger on the same level of murder. Jesus puts these things together and he says, listen, It's not just about the deed. It's about what's going on in the heart that leads to that deed. That the same anger that causes one person to hurl insults at another is the same anger that causes somebody to steal the life of someone else. And he doesn't say that anger leads to murder. He says anger is murder. That what we do with our words, what we do with our hatred, when we toss our words carelessly at another, that that is a murderous act. And we're stealing the life, and we're stealing the dignity of another. That when we get careless with our words that we can murder somebody's reputation and we can murder their confidence. And Jesus says, church, that should not be. We must be people who speak life, not murder into people. And so Jesus tells us, he tells us that we gotta be careful with what we're doing with our words. Because according to Jesus, what's harbored in the heart matters as much as what's done with the hands what we harbor in the heart, what we hold in here matters just as much as what we do with these. You ever, you ever been angry with, something? I mean like so angry with something, they done something, you're just, you're so mad, you just, you just wish them harm. You just wish they didn't exist. You ever hurled an insult at somebody? You, you ever spoken bad of somebody? Has anyone ever been Harmed? By the words you spoke of them, to them, about them? If so, you got some business to do with God and probably with that person. Jesus says the murderous, This is it's in here. He goes on to say, Matthew 5 again. says, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and, and what that's about is getting right with God. Back before the sacrifice of Christ, it was a sacrifice in the temple that would make us right with God. So if you're doing that and you remember that someone has something against you, then stop right there. Stop your worship. Stop your religion. Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. And then go and be reconciled to that person. Go make things right. That's what reconciled means. Make it right. As much as it depends on you, try to get right with them. So stop getting right with God, and go get right with that person. And then after you've done that, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. See, the bad news for us is that we have all broken the sixth commandment. We have all harbored hatred in our hearts. We've all thought evil things. We've all said nasty things about each other. We've all just been flippant with our anger and our hatred. And God says that's murderous, that we have all allowed murder into our hearts. But the really good news is that there was one. Who never did that. There was one who never broke any of God's commands. He upheld all of God's righteous law. Fully God, fully man. Was tempted and tested and tried just like you and me. And never once broke God's righteous law. And he was murdered. That our sin murderously put him on a cross. And he took the death penalty that our sin deserves for us. And he took that on himself that we might have life. To its fullest forever with Him. And we need to be reconciled with Him. We need to be made right. And the way we do that, if you've not accepted Jesus, it begins by putting your old way of life to death in the water of baptism. Coming alive to Christ, pursuing Him, and letting His life become your life. And if you have done that, it means that we regularly put our old way to death, that we choose Jesus. Now, we've waited. To celebrate communion today. Because we wanted you to hear these truths so you could think through these truths. Communion is something we do every week here at Oklahoma Christian, where we remember the sacrifice Jesus made for us, what he did on a cross for us, that he surrendered his life. With bread and juice, we remember his broken body and his blood poured out for us. But scripture tells us that when we come to do that, we're not just getting right with God, we're not just celebrating what he has done to make us right with him. But we're also to examine ourselves. So church, before you open your communion, I want to encourage you. Do you have some sin that you need to confess? Do you need to get right with God? Maybe you need to hit the pause button on taking communion today and you need to go have some time with God later today. Confess some things. Maybe you just need to hit pause on this moment. And, and, And you need to leave the sacrifice at the altar and you need to go get right with another person. Because God says that that's a form of worship, that that's part of our worship is being reconciled with one another, that we can't be totally right with him unless we're right with the other believers. And so if there's another person that you need to get right with, that don't take this now, you you go and you get right with him. He says, stop what you're doing, leave, get up and go, and you go make it right. So maybe you need to take this with you To celebrate later after you make things. Maybe you need to pick up an extra one. We'll we'll have them available as you leave at each of the exits. Maybe you need to grab a second one. And you need to go have that conversation. And as much as it depends on you, you need to get right with that person. And maybe you need to celebrate communion with them. And I know the natural tendency is to think, well, well, what are people around me going to think? If it's time to take communion, and I'm not taking it because i got to do something, right? Well, well, here's what they're going to think. They're going to think that you're really courageous. And they're going to admire you for doing what you need to do to make things right with you and another so you'll be right with God. And if they're thinking anything less than that, then you don't need to worry about what they're thinking because they got their own stuff and they need to be thinking about something else. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And then the worship team is going to come out. They're going to lead us in song. And during that song, we invite you to reflect and to take communion if you're ready. And if you're not, you just, just take it with you. And that's okay. And you take it when you're ready. So let's pray. And God, we thank you. Thank you that you are a good and gracious and loving God. We thank you for the way you work in our lives. God, we confess that we all have a murderous heart with anger, with hatred. Maybe not all the time, but none of us has been free from So, God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would weed out those seeds of hatred and anger, that you would weed out the murderous part of us, and you'd replace it with grace and mercy and compassion for others and even for ourselves. The same grace, the same mercy, the same compassion that you demonstrated for us on the cross. God, may that be demonstrated not just to us, but through us as your people and God for those who need to get right with you for those who have never surrendered to you before may today be the day that they choose to put their old life to death that they murder that old sinful life and they come alive to you and God if there are those here today who need to get right with another would you give them the courage to do that to make the phone call to drive to the house to sit down and to make things right give them a spirit of reconciliation Give them a sweet, restored relationship on the other side. We pray this for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.